Maybe you've been living under a rock, but surely you know it is March Madness. At least it's March Madness in the Gilbert household. And, I, and, and I'm, unfortunately, I'm here to report that after the first night of games, my wife was beating the socks off me and everybody else in the house. But now our family bracket is led by an 11-year-old named Virginia. She's a 99.6 percentile of the ESPN contest. It's a complete embarrassment to everyone else in our house. Trust me. But, you know, it's a reminder that this time of year, the, the magic that happens on the hardwood has spawned, has it not, some of the most famous nicknames in all of sports have come from the game of basketball. I don't even have to tell you who these people are. Even if you're not a sports fan, these are probably at some point part of your vernacular. The name's Magic or Larry Legend or the Diesel, Wilt the Stilt for you older folks, Air Jordan, Pistol Pete. See, if you know anything about those players, you know that their nickname pretty accurately describes who they were on the court. Now, it might surprise you or, or not, but the Bible also employs a variety of nicknames. And if nickname sounds too sacrilegious to you, shall we call them metaphors, okay? Pictures for God. So we read in, in the Bible all the time, the Old Testament talks about God as the rock or God as the fortress or the provider or the healer. God is the strong deliverer. We see the same thing in the New Testament. We've seen it all throughout the book of John, have we not? Where Jesus has been applying these nicknames or metaphors to himself. He said, I, I am the, I'm the bread of life. He's talked about the fact that I am the living water. Jesus has told us, I'm the light of the world. But when we think about all the metaphors, all the pictures, all the nicknames in the Bible, possibly, probably, I think, the most pervasive one in all of Scripture is the one that Jesus applies and employs to himself in our passage today. And what is it? It's the shepherd. You know, you can throw a dart at the Bible, which I do not recommend, but you can throw a dart at the Bible and hit a shepherd. I mean, there's Abraham, there's Isaac, there's Jacob, there's Moses, there's David, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. First Peter 2, Peter tells us that Jesus is the chief shepherd. The writer of Hebrews, Hebrews 13, talks about Jesus being the great shepherd of the sheep. I mean, we could go on and on and on and teach a whole course on the number of times and the usages of shepherd in the Bible. But it's this picture of himself as shepherd that Jesus offers up at really what is one of the most pivotal points in all of the gospel of John. You see, Jesus has been debating during the Feast of Booze on the Temple Mount, give and take debating with the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious leaders, the, 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 the spiritual folk of the day, these leaders, by the way, who are supposed to be what? Shepherds of Israel. And Jesus has been imploring them to come and believe in the, in the great shepherd, the chief shepherd him, himself. And, and, and we've seen how they've just continually hardened their hearts. The more Jesus has shared about himself and revealed about himself, the harder their hearts have become. But last week when Pastor Josh was was preaching on the man born blind, Jesus said, you know what? You don't believe me. You won't accept my testimony. Let me, 
maybe if you don't listen to what I say, watch what I do. I'm going to heal a man born blind. And as we saw last week, Jesus, in fact, did that. But they only hardened their hearts further. These shepherds of Israel. And so Jesus, in response to this, seemingly pulls out this metaphor. And in the process, wants to tell the Pharisees something about themselves. He wants to tell you and I something about ourselves. But most importantly, most importantly, he wants to tell us something about himself, the great shepherd. So I'm going to ask us to stand as we read from John 10. Josh had you stand and read 42 verses last week. Okay, we're going to go half that, 21 verses. I think we can do it. Hear the reading of of God's word, just precious truths in this passage, just amazing stuff. Truly, truly, I say to you, this is Jesus speaking, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he was brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay my life down for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Can, can he? Can they? Let's pray. Lord Jesus Demons can't open eyes. Only you, through the power of your spirit, can open eyes. And Lord, I believe that there are sheep that belong to you, not yet of this fold, 
that you would call to yourself this morning. Lord, would you do it? And by your name we pray. Amen. You may take your seats. Three profiles or three pictures in this passage. We're going to talk about thieves. We're going to talk about sheep. And by all means, we're going to talk about shepherds. Thieves, sheep, and shepherds. Let's talk about thieves first. You know, Jesus clearly is using a pretty common word picture here. In fact, I counted the number of times in this passage the word sheep is used. 12 or 13 times. Okay, you think Jesus is trying to, to get something across to us. And we have to ask why. You know, as want as our family to do, we, we get sucked into some of these reality shows, especially when we have some downtime. And, and one that we have particularly gravitated to is something called Life Below Zero. Okay? It's about the crazy people who live in Alaska next to the Arctic Circle. Okay, they live out in the wild. They hunt bears and moose, and it's cold, and they fish, and they just seem to kind of suffer all sorts of infirmities. But anyway, they don't have much. They have little huts, little igloos. They live in holes in the ground, rocks in the ground. But one thing they all have in common, okay, is every one of these folks has a bunch of dogs, okay? And I'm talking like these dogs, not like a couple dogs, I'm talking a dozen strong. These dogs get the royal treatment. They have their own little house. They get fed red meat every day, which doesn't sound like a bad life at all. They, they, they're groomed. They're meticulously cared for. But here's the thing. They are protected at all costs, and here's why. Because in that culture up near the Arctic Circle, for some reason, the place where people decide to live, it's through dogs that you get from one place to another. It's through dogs that you go hunt, that you bring back meat, that you bring back water, that you bring back food, that you get from point A to point B. They're integral to the life of the community. This is how sheep functioned and still function, by the way, in many agrarian cultures, but most certainly in this one. They were the lifeblood of the community. Food, fur, clothing, they were an integral part of life. And so what would happen is villages would have a number of families, number of inhabitants, and each family or clan would have a flock of, flock of sheep or herd of sheep. And so they would, they would take these sheep, and, and instead of like building a bunch of little different pens in the village to keep these sheep in, they would kind of pull their resources together, and they would w- build one giant pen okay, to, to put all the sheep in. And each of these little flocks would have their own individual shepherd. And the way that these shepherds communicated with, with their sheep was through their Voice. Now, now, when we think about sheep, when we think about herding sheep, a lot of times we think about our hook and our crook and we're, we're herding through. And we, and we know this as parents, there's two ways to herd kids, right? Okay. One is by your voice, your father's, your melodious tone in the morning, singing, crooning over your children, calling them to obedience, right? You can do it with your voice or how else can you do it? With the old crook, you know what I'm saying? Like you like heard them, get them moving, let's go, buster, let's get out of bed, let's get into the van. Well, there's two, there's two ways of herding sheep. In the west, they would herd them with these staffs. But in the east, they didn't use staffs for herding. It all happened through the voice. 
They would call, they would command, they would, they would, they would, in verse three, Jesus gives us a picture of this. He talks about this idea of shepherds calling the sheep by name, okay? Little nicknames, so to speak. It's the way I like to think about it, okay? They, they, but, but clearly these sheep were conditioned to hear the voice, okay, of one and only one shepherd. And you knew they were the correct sheep by the way they responded to your voice. That was kind of how it worked. And of course, they went to all of this trouble because we know sheep are an incredibly vulnerable animal. In fact, Jesus alludes to this in verse 1. Look there, where he talks about all of these sheep being in a pen, but there are in fact thieves and robbers who are attempting to scale the wall to get into the sheep. Now, why would they want to get into the sheep? To pet them, right? No, no, parents discuss this later, okay? They would steal them. They would haul them out of there. Sometimes they would even, okay, you know what I'm saying, parents? And, and, and put, so that the sheep wouldn't make any noise and hoist it over the wall. The point is, is that they were unauthorized. They didn't belong there. They weren't a true shepherd. Now, in this story, in this illustration, who, who is who here? And we're going to talk about how Jesus is the shepherd and he's the door. And we all know that we're the stinky sheep and we'll get to all that. But one of the things that we forget about this passage, this is, and by the way, this is a passage full of incredibly precious truths that we have no hope of unpacking in their entirety today. But we have to remember something, Four Oaks. First of all, this is a story of judgment against the Pharisees. You see, they are the robbers and the thieves. They are the ones climbing over the gate. They are the ones who are, who are attempting unauthorized entry to lead the flock of God. You know, and, and let's try to understand what we're saying here. In the Old Testament, and it's the same in the New Testament, the chief job of the elders of Israel was to protect the flock, to feed them, teach them, care for them, protect them, to lead the people of God towards God. That is the most important thing that a spiritual leader can do. It's the sin quan of spiritual leadership, and the same applies for the New Testament church, the elders of this church. That is our primary central calling, is to lead you towards God. This is what the Pharisees, the religious leaders, were supposed to be doing. But as we know, and if, you, if you've read this gospel and made this journey with us, you know that is not what was going on. The Pharisees were not there to lead people to God. They were there to enrich and empower themselves. They used the people of God as a, for a platform, for a public standing, for wealth, for influence. They were fleecing the flock. This is why Jesus has so many just frightening things to say to the religious leaders all through the Gospels. Remember, he calls them whitewashed tombs. He says, you're blind guides. He, he accused them of saddling people up with these burdens and traditions that were extra-biblical and legalistic and, and making people carry these spiritual burdens that were too heavy to carry. And in fact, we saw this, and, and this is kind of what sparked this particular passage from Jesus last week in the case of a blind man. 
they would rather cast that blind man out. Now remember, this is a man who's been miraculously healed by the power of God. But rather than acknowledge it, rather than acknowledge Jesus, rather than to give glory to God, rather than to praise God for the work he's done in this man's life, they said, we don't want to hear it. We, hear no, we, hear, we don't hear it, see it. We don't want to know about it. In fact, get away from us. We excommunicate you. We put you out of the church because the truth threatens our position. They would rather destroy a man's soul than admit the truth that would invalidate their spiritual leadership. And this is what made them exceedingly dangerous. This is, this is why Jesus saves his harshest words for them. This is reminiscent of what Jesus, of what God through Ezekiel tells the shepherds in the Old Testament. Listen to this passage, and it can be just as true for the religious leaders in this one. Ah, shepherds of Israel. And by the way, anytime God addresses you and says, ah, that's not a good thing, right? Okay. Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. You see, that blind man was listening to one voice, the voice of the true shepherd, and not the false shepherds of the leaders of Israel. Guys, it's real easy, I think, when we, when we think about this, to, to kind of locate this issue out there somewhere right? Oh, surely, Pastor Paul, we've got our biblical bona fides here, right? We've got great elders. We've got a great statement of faith. This is, this could never happen to us. But again, Satan doesn't work like that. Satan rarely will attack through a full frontal assault. It's much more deceptive. It's much more subtle. And one way to think about this in terms of, well, where do we as a church need to be on guard? Where do your leaders need to be on guard? How, how are your leaders being in the shepherds of this church, how are they called to be faithful in this regard? And let me just say a couple things about this. Number one, contra to many different other Christian traditions, let's just leave it at that, other branches of the church, spiritual authority is not automatically vested in ecclesiastical authority. So in other words, in some traditions, by virtue of being a this or a that, by having some position of ecclesiastical authority, that means my authority is valid. And let me just say very clearly, not true. Not true. There's many ecclesiastical authorities ministering in mainline denominations and elsewhere who don't even believe in the virgin birth who don't believe in the exclusivity of Christ, who don't even believe in the Trinity, who don't believe in the, in the substitutionary death of Christ, which means that spiritual authority is to be vested in leadership in our church, T, 
to the extent that we faithfully, fruitfully teach, preach in accordance, counsel with, talk with, engage with, in accordance with the Word of God. If you ever, ever, ever hear me and play this tape back, it's not tape now, it's whatever it is, okay? Play this back. Pastor Paul, you said this. If your elders, me, any of your pastors, anyone's spiritual authority ever, ever pushes you towards something that will violate your conscience or you think is against the Bible or that is not explicitly stated and things get wonky and things get weird, please, I'm telling you today, run. Run. Because authority is not vested in spiritual position by virtue of title or office. It's, it's vested by virtue of spiritual activity. Jesus says this, the New Testament says this over and over and over. So that's one thing we want to say. A second thing we want to say is, I, I, I'm going to ask you, guys, please pray for us as your elders and leaders. This is not a perfunctory office. We do not have elders emeritus at Four Oaks. We have, by God's grace, hopefully qualified biblical men who are called to shepherd the body of Christ. We, we take that very seriously. We think that one day we will stand before the Lord, as the writer of Hebrews says, and give an account. And this is why when we talk about things like church membership, this is not about checking boxes and making sure your name's on a piece of paper and all that. This is about the relationship we all have with each other as a community of believers to say, we will shepherd you. You will, you will be a part of this community. We're all looking to the, sheep, the chief shepherd who governs us by his word. Pray for us. Because one of the ways you can pray for us is, is to think about where, where as, as, a, as a church family, as a leadership, might we be tempted? Might we be tempted? Not to, not to come on, we know, declare heretical truth or heretical error. But where might we just be so, so tempted to be silent or to not say something or to not push in? And I started thinking about this. I started th- one way to think about this is, uh, is if a hundred years from now we were to look back, what would we say were the blind spots of this age? What, were we, what would we say are the idols of this age? And let's speak to those now. And I just started making a little list and he who has ears, let him hear. And this is personally convicting for me. Where does worldliness, apathy, compromise tempt us? Here's a few. Session with recreation and travel. Self-absorption with food and health. The way we, 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 me, idolize our kids and our, and our grandkids, the way that we view God's family oftentimes as only optional and peripheral and something to be prioritized if and if when everything else is done on our list. Because I think these are all particular idols for this age, and it's so easy, so easy for us, for me, just to look at you and say, peace, 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 peace. We're, we're doing good. We're great. We're, we're, we're doing okay financially, and we're faithful, and we've got a great statement of faith. But remember, where we go unchallenged by God's word, we go unchanged. 
So pray for me. Pray for us. Pray that we will be reminded of a great truth from this passage. This church does not belong to me. This church does not belong to your leaders. This church belongs to Jesus. He is the head of this church. This church are the sheep of the great shepherd. And because of that, we don't dare. We don't dare mess with that. But we pray. So we don't want to be like verse 6. Look at verse 6. It says that the leaders didn't understand. Because they couldn't. They didn't belong to God. They were not his shepherds. They were false shepherds. They didn't listen to his voice. Here is this blind man, born blind, a nobody, a sheep of God called, listened to his voice. Okay, that's all we're going to say about thieves. We've got to get moving. Okay, the thieves. Number two, the sheep. Now, now the Bible, Jesus, you've heard this before, could have picked any animal to compare us to, right? What would be your animal? What's your animal spirit, right? Is it the lion, the tiger, the velociraptor, okay, the T-Rex? Okay, I would settle for a donkey, okay, at this point in the game. But of all the animals, of all the animals Jesus compares us to, and and, and if you don't get a little offended at this, you really don't know, right? You're just a sheep. I'm just a sheep. And it's self-explanatory, is it not? Sheep are the dumbest, most vulnerable, dirtiest, least self-aware of all the animals, are they not? Sheep make the turtles who try to cross Shannon Lake's drive look like brain surgeons, by the way, okay? What's up with the turtles? They have lost their minds, okay? Sheep require constant care. And obviously, what is God doing? He's given us a spiritual biography, a spiritual picture of ourselves. Christianity is not going to make any sense. Jesus as shepherd will not make any sense to you if you don't know accurately who you are. That we are a people who are needy. We are a people who are desperate. We are wanderers. We make a mess of, their lo- of our lives without even trying. We alienate ourselves constantly from each other and from God. We don't need self-help. We don't need improvement. There's a lot of other places you can find that. You see, we don't need, what we need most of all is not kind of a, a, reclam- a renovation project, so to speak. As what we need fundamentally is rescue. We need salvation. We, we need desperately needed help. See, we are full of sin, full of deception, full, full of ourselves. And unless we understand accurately who we are, unless we, are, unless we understand that when, when in our natural self we are just wandering around in the middle of I-10 blinded, blindfolded, trying to find our way across from one side to the other until we understand that. We won't understand the gospel. We won't understand Christianity. We won't understand Jesus. Jesus reminds us, again, I've said this before, 12 or 13 times he uses the word sheep in this passage. You get the idea? 
You need to know who you are, who I am. But here's what's amazing about this. I want you to look at verse 10. That Jesus did not come just to save us, although he did. Jesus did not come just to rescue us, just to pull us out from a pit, just to get us back to square one on the Monopoly board, right? Get out of jail free card. That's, 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 that's part of what he did, but that's not nearly what he did. Look at verse 10. This is one of the great passages of all of Scripture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. See, that word abundant kind of plays on this idea of the fat, flourishing, contented sheep. It's you after Thanksgiving dinner on the couch watching the Detroit Lions lose again, right? Okay, that, that's, that, that's, the, that's the image here. See, Jesus is telling us that sheep aren't meant to live in a pen. Sheep aren't meant to merely, th- merely survive. Sheep are meant to thrive. Sheep are meant to live. Sheep are meant to flourish. And here, Jesus is not talking about wealth and prosperity and, the gos- and, and, and wealth and materialism and all that sort of stuff. He's talking about eternal pleasures. He's talking about eternal joy. Do you know that Jesus did not come to short-circuit your pleasure? He came to maximize it in him for eternity. Doesn't that resonate with you? Isn't there something in your heart that wants that? You've heard me share this before, but aren't there those times in your life, maybe you're at the theme park or you're at the football game or you're with the family around a dinner, or there's some, you're on a romantic getaway or on a honeymoon or a wedding, and you, you, everything about that moment seems so right. Everything is aligned perfectly. And, 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 and you're just like, if I can just bottle this moment up and make it last forever. But what is always in the back of your mind when that's going on? What's always going in the back of your mind? It's got to end. This is going to, this is, I can't, it can't last forever. It's like in the last battle when, when Lucy is, is, is riding along, running along with the other animals and the other creatures of Narnia, and, and Aslan turns and looks at her and says, child, you're not as happy as I would, would want you to be. He said, but Aslan, we're just so afraid that you're going to send us back. Don't, don't you get that? Don't you resonate with that? And of course, he tells her, haven't you yet guessed, dear? Haven't you yet guessed? You're here to stay. This is what Jesus means by eternal life, by abundant life. You see, every one of us in here, whether you're a Christian or not, whether you believe in God or not, whether this is your first time in church or your thousandth time in church, we are all hard, hardwired in our souls to search for the good life the abundant life. But the issue is, and Jesus here is pointing us to this issue, through what door, through what path do we choose to pursue the abundant life? And lots of us have tried lots of doors, have we not? We, we've, gone a lot, we've gone down a lot of paths, we've drank at a lot of wells, a lot of different sources 
of water. And we all know in our heart of hearts, none of them will ultimately do. Which is why Jesus thunders forth, look in verse 7. So again, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. I'm not a door. I'm not one of the doors. I am the door. And through me, in me alone, can you find this abundant life. And you may say, Pastor Paul, that just seems so narrow. That, that, that is such a massive, monumental claim. How in the world could Jesus say, I am the door? It's because he's also the shepherd, our last point. Jesus shifts his metaphors now. and Look at verse 11 where he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. Now, literally, in the Greek, it should be inter- it's, it's interpreted this way. I am the shepherd, the good one. That, that's literally what it says. Kairos, good. I am the shepherd, the good one. And by good, we don't mean morally good, although Jesus is clearly infinitely eternal, eternal, holy, and good. That's, but that's not what this word means. This word means best, or most worthy, or noble. See, remember, Jews knew all about shepherds. And they knew that God was their shepherd, but they also knew that God had made a promise. And what was this promise? It's from Ezekiel 34. God tells the people, I will rescue my flock... They shall no longer be a prey, and I will judge between sheep and sheep. Now listen to this, verse 23. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord, I have spoken. Now, everyone in Israel knew that David was the shepherd par excellence. But what's the problem in this passage? What's the problem with this? What's the problem with this, with this, with this promise? David is like super dead. <laughs> okay? You could go see his body in Jerusalem. This was written 600 years after David had reigned as the greatest of kings over Israel. David's shepherding days are over. So if you're a Jew, how do you read this passage? Well, the Jews knew. They knew that David was ultimately a type, a prototype of the coming shepherd, a great shepherd, or as John calls, or Jesus calls himself, the good shepherd. In other words, the shepherd, the good one, the best one, the most worthy one, the shepherd to come. And Jesus tells us why he's qualified to be this shepherd. Look at verse 15. There's two things here. Verse 15, he says, Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay my life down for the sheep. The first, the first piece of requirement that Jesus meets, and this is all sacrificial language, by the way, the word upair, it means to die for or in the place of someone. Jesus says, I am here to die for you. Just like a good shepherd does, who's willing to lay his life down for the sheep, I will lay my life down for you. 
I will be a sacrifice of atonement for your sins. I will die in your place. The thief and the robber is coming for you, but instead, they're going to come for me. So that's one, that's one piece of requirement that Jesus meets here. But if you're paying close attention, you should know that this raises another problem. And it's, it's a problem you can get as a, as a dad or mom. You're asleep at night. You're protecting your kids. You hear a noise downstairs. All the husbands send their wives downstairs. Don't do that, husbands. Okay? Don't do not do that. And, and something's down there. And you know in that moment, I'm willing to die for the people in this house. I'm willing to die. But let's say there's a gang of den, a den of thieves and robbers. And you can be willing to give your life, parent, all you want to. And in fact, you can lay down your life and you can die in the call of duty. But what's the problem? They're still going to get your family. Because there's more of them than you. And Jesus said, not so for me. Look at verses 17 and 18. Oh, he lays his life down all right. For this reason, verse 17, the Father loves me because I lay my life down. Now listen to this, what glorious news, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. In other words, I don't stay dead. I'm needed too much here. I'm coming back to life to conquer sin and death. I'm I'm coming back to life to send my spirit to help you, to guide you, to lead you, to empower you. See, Jesus is eminently qualified as the great shepherd, not just because he came to die, although that is so important. It's because he came to give life. He came to be raised from the dead. When we celebrate here in two weeks, that's what what we're really celebrating We're celebrating the authority of Jesus who lays his life down of his own accord not one second sooner, not one second later. And he raises it up again because he has ultimate power and authority over sin and death. That's what makes him the shepherd, the good one. Only he can save his sheep. There's a great promise. We're going to conclude with this in verse 16 mentioned before that these sheep in this passage that Jesus has, has come to are the, are the lost sheep of Israel. He refers to, refers, um, to that again and again in the, in the Gospels. But Jesus said, I've not just come for the sheep in this fold, meaning the Jews. Look at verse 16. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Who's he talking about? You. Me. Us. Now, that's just an amazing thing. Jesus said, my authority extends to the the extent that I lay my life down for these sheep. But not just these sheep, but the sheep that will come after I'm gone. Us sheep. Can I use it? bad grammar, okay? but us sheep, right? That, that I've got authority to, to call. I have a voice. I'm calling to you through my spirit, through my word, and I'm giving life. I'm, I'm preaching good news. I'm gathering my people together. Do you understand why what we do here is so 
It's just, it's, it's, a, it's a glimpse of heaven. It's a foretaste. It's a foreshadowing of what we will be doing forever. Jesus says, and this is an amazing promise, I have many sheep not of this fold. Guys, pray in this Easter season as you're thinking about who you're praying for, inviting the church and all those things. Pray that God will give you eyes to, 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 to know that all around you, you don't know who they are necessarily. There's somebody at the grocery store, your cranky next-door neighbor, or the guy who drank too much beer yesterday at the St. Patty's thing. I don't know if they serve beer, but anyway, what, you get what I'm saying. Like, who, whoever, the guy you work with, the person in your dorm room, they too could be a sheep of God. See, this, is, this world is not just full of a bunch of potential sheep, but from God's perspective, he has a people. He has a flock. He is calling them. His calling is effectual. His sheep will hear his voice. And be greatly encouraged by this. Parents, neighbors, relatives, those who are, your heart is burdened for prodigals, know this. That God is sovereign over his flock. And that his sheep will, at the end of the day, hear his voice. And it might be through many trials and it might be through many travails and many temptations and much, much weeping and anger and gnashing of teeth, but God's voice will prevail because his sheep do hear his voice. Remember what Paul, the Apostle Paul said when he was thinking about booking it out of, I think it was Corinth or Thessalonica, I can't remember. The Holy Spirit shows up and says, Paul, fear not. I have many men in this city. I have many men in that family. I have many men in that community group. I have many men and women in that class. I have many men and women in that workplace. I have many men and women just all around you. Just pray that Lord would send harvesters in the field. And that harvester, by the way, is you and me. Verse 19 closes by giving us these ominous words. Again, there was a division among them because of the words of Jesus. He's insane, he's a demon. Others are, can a demon open the eyes of the blind? It reminds us that it's one or the other. It's either insanity, this man is crazy, or as the blind man showed us, it is worship. When a man offers worship to Jesus in chapter 9, Jesus does not refuse his worship because that's what's at stake. That's what's at stake for me, it's what's at stake for you. There's no apathy. There's no indifference. Rightly understood, we should be driven today to say this man has lost his mind. For he is the shepherd, the good one. Who is he for you? Let's pray.